Welcome to the Say the Word podcast, where we'll dig into words and language as tools for curiosity. I'm your host, Cindy Givinoli, and together we're going to explore how language is used in literature, memoir, poetry, and all kinds of fiction and nonfiction to connect us to what it means to be human and how to use curiosity to peel back the layers of what's keeping us from living the rich, meaningful lives we were always meant to be living. Well, hello there, and welcome back. Today we're talking about a selection from Min Jin Lee's best-selling novel, Pachinko. It's going to be awesome, and I can't wait to get started. But before we begin, I have two requests of you. First, I'm running low on beloved quotes and lines from you guys reading, so I'm asking for more. Send me a bit of something you've read and loved, and tell me why it touched you. I love sharing these at the end of every episode, and I need your help to keep it going. You can always leave a comment on the show notes or send me an email at staycurious at cindygibinoli.com. Second, it's such a huge help getting my podcast found by new listeners when you guys leave a rating or review, so I would so appreciate it if you would. It makes such a difference, and I would be forever grateful. Thank you. Alrighty, so as I was putting my thoughts together about Pachinko and what I wanted to say here, I was struck again by how impactful a story can be. If you aren't familiar with this book, it takes place in Korea and Japan between the years of 1910 and 1989, a period that included the Japanese occupation of Korea and World War II, and these events play a central role in the story. Lee has said that the history of Korean-Japanese relations is one of the most obvious displays of racism and exclusion outside the norms of the West. As you might imagine, this story is both deeply moving and deeply heartbreaking. Now, I'm a little embarrassed to admit this, especially considering that one of my undergraduate majors was history. But when I picked up this book, I knew nothing about 20th century Asian history, or really much beyond the basic, most basic Asian history at all. Honestly, the only time I remember Asia being mentioned in my history classes growing up was in reference to American wars, the fighting with Japan in the Pacific in World War II, maybe a tiny blip of a mention about Korea, and then the Vietnam War, though even that tended to focus more on 1960s counterculture than what was actually happening in Southeast Asia at the time. But this book opened my eyes to how little I knew, and it was the catalyst for me to do some investigating. As I went down a few rabbit holes online, it was the characters from this book, Sunja and Kyung Hee and Yang Jin and Isaac and Yoseb, that I imagined living through the history that I was learning about. I've said it before, and this will not be the last time you hear this from me, but stories are such a powerful way to connect in deep empathy with other humans, even if the other people that we're initially empathizing with are fictional. This book was both a spotlight on my ignorance and also a beautiful invitation to fix it. I know I say this nearly every episode, but again, curiosity and judgment can't really share the same space. I could either judge myself harshly for that ignorance 
Or I could avail myself of the invitation and add the richness of learning and greater understanding to my life. Oh, before I go any further, the excerpt I chose today is from a little bit past the halfway point of the book. And as such, it, I don't know, sort of gives away a few minor spoilers. They're not direct, but if you are sensitive to such things, you may want to pick a different episode to listen to today. I definitely don't want to ruin anyone's experience of this incredible book. So, all right, let's get to our selection. This is from Min Jin Lee's Pachinko. Yosub exhaled. Would anything bring the boy back, he wondered. He did not think so. This life had too much loss. When Isaac died, Yosub had thought of his brother's little boys and vowed to watch over them. Noah and Mozasu were not his own, but what did that matter? He had wanted to be a good man for them. Then, after the war, after his accident, he had resigned himself to death and looked forward only to the boy's future. The stupid heart could not help but hope. Life had seemed almost bearable, though Yosef was nearly cut off from the living, confined to his pallet. His family had persisted. Life continued. To Yosef, Noah had seemed so much like Isaac that it had been possible to forget that the boy's blood father was someone else, someone wholly different from this gentle Isaac. But now the poor boy had learned somehow that he had descended from another line. The boy had decided to leave them, and his departure was a punishment. Yosef could understand the boy's anger, but he wanted, an, he wanted another chance to talk to him, to tell Noah that a man must learn to forgive, to know what is important, that to live without forgiveness was a kind of death with breathing and movement. So the core of what I want to talk about today centers around that last line, around the idea of forgiveness. But first, I think the earlier sections of this paragraph are worth taking a look at as well. Now, Yosef talks about this life having too much loss, but how his life was given hope and meaning because he'd wanted to be a good man for his brother's sons. How even when he didn't believe he'd survive his injuries, it was their futures that gave him solace. He says, The stupid heart could not help but hope that even though his injuries confined him to his palate, his family had persisted and that life had continued. And what I love here is the way that he's sort of talking from both sides of his mouth a little, right? On the one hand, he's acknowledging the pain of his life, the death of his brother, the injuries that caused him physical pain and limitation, as well as kept him from providing for his family, which was something that, you know, mattered to him. He says that this life had too much loss, and that's true. In this story, Yosef and his family suffered greatly in a variety of ways. But even if we never have to survive the kinds of tragedies that this family does, on a long enough timeline, none of us escape grief or loss or disappointment or even loneliness. But then he goes on later to say, the stupid heart could not help but hope. And none of us escape that either. We are built for hope. Even when all evidence points to the contrary, we are wired to hang on to the possibility of a better future. Now, Tali Shiro is a psychologist and neuroscientist who stumbled onto something called the optimism bias during her research and decided to dig deeper. I will put some links to her work in the show notes if you'd like to take a trip down that particular rabbit hole, which from experience, I can tell you it's a fun one. But here are the cliff notes. 
Optimism bias is the belief that our future will be better than our past or present. And her research shows that approximately 80% of us are wired for that bias. Now, when she was looking for the neural mechanisms that generated this optimism bias, she scanned the brains of her subjects and discovered that people learn less from unexpected negative news than positive news, that there was less precise encoding of negative information in the brain's frontal lobes. It turns out that our brains are hungry for positive feedback. And while optimism and hope aren't precisely the same thing, I think we can use them interchangeably for our purposes here today. I mean, in some ways, Yosef's sentence, the stupid heart could not help but hope, is almost quite literally true, right? If our brains don't precisely encode negative information in our frontal lobes, then in a way, we're a little quote-unquote stupid about it. And it biases us toward optimism, which in Chirot's research is linked to greater happiness in life. This optimism bias emboldens us to take chances that experience might warn us away from, but which also may lead us to purpose and meaning we couldn't have anticipated. In this story, Yosef found meaning in his relationships to his nephews and in the way his family persisted despite hardship. That life had continued in the face of loss registered to him as the root of hope. In the same way that courage relies on fear for for its existence, there's an argument to be made that you know, hope comes to life in the face of struggle, or at the very least, the acknowledgement of struggle as a possibility. So let's allow our stupid hearts to hope, because really, that's what we're made for. Now, I want to spend some time with these last two sentences. And here they are again. The boy had decided to leave them, and his departure was a punishment. Yosef could understand the boy's anger, but he wanted another chance to talk to him, to tell Noah that a man must learn to forgive, to know what is important, that to live without forgiveness was a kind of death with breathing and movement. Now, something I think is interesting about the way these two sentences are phrased is that it's not actually clear who the subject of the punishment is or who it is exactly that feels that kind of death with breathing and movement. Now, does Minjin Lee, through Yosef here, mean to say that Noah's decision to leave was a punishment for himself or for his family? Is Yosef saying that to live without forgiveness is a kind of death for the one withholding the forgiveness or the one waiting to be forgiven? Now, forgiveness is a sticky, painful subject. Whether we're the ones hoping to be forgiven or the ones doing it, it can feel loaded and complicated and just plain hard. Back in episode six, we talked about guilt and shame, and this discussion of forgiveness feels like the other side of that coin. How do we forgive ourselves for our mistakes or for the ways we've hurt those we love? How do we ask them to forgive us? How do we forgive those who have hurt us or, sometimes even more difficult, those who have hurt someone we love? And why does it matter? Why would we bother? Is Yosa right? Is living without forgiveness a kind of death? Short answer, yeah, I think it is. Anger is a heavy weight to bear, and it is deeply toxic. It pollutes things that we never meant it to touch, and it never stays as contained as we think it will. You know, in the first sentence, Yosef says that Noah's departure was a punishment, and I wonder who was punished most. Yosef says that he can understand the boy's anger, so I think it's safe to assume that Noah meant his leaving to punish his family, and it does. They love him and miss him and feel his absence keenly in this story. 
And also, I think it begs two questions. Did that punishment right the wrong? Did it fix it? Did Noah holding on to his anger change anything? And does it serve him? Does holding on to that anger actually make his life better? Is he happier? Is he more fulfilled because of it? I mean, what do you think the answers to those questions might be? You know, I would need a much, much longer period of time than the 20-something minutes I allot for these podcasts to dive fully into forgiveness. I mean, maybe I would need days. And so this discussion doesn't go nearly as deep as I would like it to. But I think it begins with asking ourselves what the word forgiveness even means to us. I mean, how do we define it? What does it look like in real life? And does forgiving mean forgetting? How do we actually do it? I think of forgiveness as a part of a sort of three-word interlocking triangle. And again, given our limited time, this is a little oversimplified, but these are the three sides to the triangle for me. First is acceptance. What happens when we accept what can't be changed, whether that's something that happened or didn't, who someone is, or what resources are available to us at any given moment? Wishing things had gone differently, or rehashing over and over where something went wrong, being angry that someone is who they are, are all ways that we hang on to things that weigh us down and keep us from moving forward. Acceptance is not easy. For example, accepting grief and loss might be one of the most painful and difficult things that we can do as humans. It's neither linear nor predictable, and it takes a tremendous amount of work. But when we begin to accept that it is part of us now, that when we begin to create the space to figure out how to cope with that pain, I mean, acceptance is almost always the first part of moving forward. And then as the other part of that triangle, there's agency. When we hang on to the things that no longer serve us or that can't be changed, we forfeit agency over our lives and our choices and our paths forward. We cannot find happiness or purpose or peace when we are stuck in the past, when we're stuck in habits or judgments or mistakes or regrets or blame. Acceptance and forgiveness can restore our choices. They can open our pathways and hand us back our agency so that we can design design our own lives instead of letting it be shaped by what we perceive as unforgivable. And then forgiveness is that third side of the triangle. What happens if we learn to forgive what cannot be undone, whether that means forgiving ourselves or someone else? This is as hard as acceptance, maybe harder. But until we do it, we stay stuck. We're unable to move forward from whatever or whoever the situation entails. And I know that one of the first responses that we have to this idea when it comes to forgiving another person is that they don't deserve it. And the truth of the matter is that that might be true. But I think the real point is that we deserve it. We deserve to be freed from that sticking place, to be liberated from that weight that we were carrying, to have our own lives move forward. Again, this is not easy in the slightest. I know this. But I do think it's worth considering that we deserve better than having our lives held in place by someone else's transgressions. We just do. And If it's ourselves that we're struggling to forgive, then we owe it both to ourselves and to the people that love us to do that work, to create something meaningful from the hard, hard lessons that come out of our mistakes instead of letting our anger or self-loathing pollute those relationships. 
A few years ago, I was on a road trip and binge listening to The Moth Radio Hour. Now, if you're not familiar, The Moth Radio Hour is a weekly series featuring true stories told live on stage without scripts or any kind of props. Now, sometimes the stories are funny and sometimes they're moving or heartbreaking. And on the day in question, I ended up listening to a story that... I mean, it forced me to pull my car over on the side of the road to finish because I could not see through my sobbing. I'll definitely link the story in the show notes, and I really encourage you to listen to it because it is the most powerful story of forgiveness I think I've ever heard. And the story was told by a man named Hector Black, whose beloved adopted daughter was raped and murdered. And he talks about his grief and rage and pain and then how ultimately he came to forgive his daughter's attacker and over time even developed a kind of friendship with him. His courage and compassion continues to astound and move me and I've probably listened to that story at least 10 times over the years. To hold fast to the anger required to withhold forgiveness, I mean we also have to hold on to judgment, right? We have to judge the transgression as unforgivable. We have to judge ourselves incapable of letting that anger go, of moving from the place that it holds us. And with all judgment, we can begin to ease it with gentle curiosity, with beginning to ask even the smallest of questions. Where in our bodies do we feel this anger, our grief, our righteousness? Does it live in our chests and seal our breath or maybe in our gut? I mean, what does it feel like? Is it a clenching or a churning or does it make us feel heavy and weighted? How does our anger impact this moment? Does it lift us up? Does it satisfy us even momentarily? What are we getting out of it? Does it open us up or does it shut us down? What do we want to result from our anger and, you know, is it working? Is it actually getting us the results that we want? What are we most afraid of if we let this go? What does it feel like when, like we talked about with guilt in episode six, we hold it up against who we want to be? Does it serve the life that we want to be living? Again, who is being punished, really? You know, I think forgiveness is rarely a single act. We... Rarely, right? Wake up one morning liberated from the pain and anger that made it so hard to forgive in the first place. I mean, I think more often, forgiveness is a practice that we have to come back to over and over and over. And we practice it by continuing to ask those questions, by approaching our pain and anger with interest and genuine, for real curiosity. I mean, ultimately, It comes back to, you know, who's being punished, really, and who is suffering a kind of death with breathing and movement. Our lives are complex and full of both loss and hope. Ultimately, we live our richest lives when we feel connected, when we feel that our choices and our lives match our values and who we want to be in this world. Yosef says that Noah must learn to forgive, to know what is important, and to, that to live without forgiveness is a kind of death with breathing and movement. And what kind of life do we want to build? What is important? And where does forgiveness fit into that, whether it's forgiving ourselves or forgiving someone else? How can we set down this weight? 
So that was an excerpt from Minjin Lee's best-selling novel, Pachinko. And as always, the link to the book and to all of the resources I mentioned here can be found in the show notes at cindyjivinoli.com backslash podcast. And this week, I want to finish with this quote sent to me by listener Meredith H. She says, A few years ago, I picked up Lauren Goff's book, The Fates and the Furies, after President Obama had called it his favorite book of 2015. This quote stood out to me, and I immediately wrote it into the front of the journal that I'm still using. The quote. Because it's true. More than the highlights, the bright events, it was in the small and the daily where she'd found life. End of quote. And Meredith says, I love this reminder, especially in today's world of highlight reels and social media influencers, that it's the day-to-day moments that are what add up to make up my life. I try to read this anytime I open my journal, and I really love letting it soak in. I love this. What a great reminder to look for the small and the beautiful in our regular old days instead of waiting for the big things to bother paying attention to our lives. Thank you so much for this, Meredith. I really appreciate it. And like I mentioned at the beginning, I'm running low on these guys. So please, please send me yours because I love sharing them here. Next week, we are pulling from Terry Tempest Williams' book, Refuge, which is one of my very favorite books of all time. And I've been so looking forward to this. So that's next week. And in the meantime, you know, be sure to stay curious out there. That's it for this episode of the Say the Word podcast, where we explore how language is used in fiction, nonfiction, and poetry to connect us to what it means to be human and how to use curiosity to peel back the layers of what's keeping us from living the rich, meaningful lives we were always meant to be living. Be sure to share and subscribe so you don't miss an episode. And I would so appreciate it if you would go ahead and leave a review. Thanks for listening. I'm Cindy Givinoli, and I'll see you next week on Say the Word. Say the Word.